1: From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Juneteenth, also known as Freedom Day, commemorates the official end of slavery in the U.S. In 1865, more than two years after President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, Union soldiers arrived in Galveston, Texas, and announced the end of the American Civil War to the last known group of of enslaved people in the country. The day itself, June 19th, is next Wednesday, but celebrations kick off across Georgia this weekend, from big festivals to more intimate evening conversations. Today, the Juneteenth Atlanta Parade and Music Festival launches three days of music, art, talks, food, and plenty of activities for all ages. The parade itself goes from Mosley Park to the Home Depot backyard. And the Atlanta History Center hosts its annual celebration with free admission all weekend, including a conversation with genealogist and TV personality Kenyatta Berry. She'll be talking about her family tree toolkit there on Sunday and joins us here for On Second Thought this coming Monday. Saturday in Savannah, a Juneteenth event celebrates freedom and emphasizes cultural arts and achievement, all free, complete with food and entertainment taking place from 11 to 4 at Wells Park. If you're in Athens, you can celebrate Sunday, Saturday morning rather at the West Broad Farmers Market from 10 to 3. Families can enjoy fresh produce, live music, and uplifting cultural performances. There's a big list of Juneteenth events across the state on our website, gpbnews.org, including happenings in Macon. And to hear more about those, we welcome George Fadil Muhammad. He's co-founder of the Georgia Juneteenth and Freedom Festival in Macon. Fadil welcome.
2: Peace and blessings. Thank you.
1: Well for Juneteenth, a celebration of course, but of such historical significance and magnitude. How do you even approach content and programming?
2: Well, we think about the relevance. You know, it's, it's a very powerful thing to realize that being free was something that was not always available to us. And To be owned by another human being is a horror. It's it's like a nightmare. Today, we have a different reality, and it's important to remember what was going on and how, in this day and time, our behaviors, the level of our progress from that moment, uh, where are we, and to always take assessment. So there are many ways in which we can reeducate many generations that are disconnected from that, new uh, young children, youth that need to be Uh, reminded of the struggle, and then building, continuing with our responsibility to build each and every day, each and every moment of our lives. That's that's what feeds our programming, determining what we're going to do.
1: Well, you started celebrations already a week ago, community dinner, neighborhood reunion, hip-hop summit, and a a van tour, a Black History Making van tour. What are some of the notable landmarks featured on that tour?
2: Well, we start with the terminal station that still has a colored-only a uh, uh, sign that's etched into stone, and a lot of people say, "Well, why don't you take that down?" But it's very important also to make it real. A lot of people don't believe it's real. A lot of people don't believe anything that's not in color is not re- is real. Uh, so it's it's very important, and so that's one of the landmarks. is also a place where master black bricklayers and carpenters and masons. Uh, constructed that building and all throughout Macon, downtown Macon City Hall, the City Auditorium, the Southern Trust Building, City Annex, Uh, St. Joseph's Cathedral, so many beautiful churches and beautiful structures were built by these invisible hands. So that's part of what's on the tour. We show where slave markets were on Poplar Street. Uh, We talk about Cotton Avenue and uh, it being a a mecca of black business and black religious institutions. So uh, all of those, there's so many things when you come through downtown Macon you take for granted that really were built uh, by enslaved black people and people who just had great skills and made a great contribution to Macon.
1: And Atlanta is often credited as an epicenter for African-American and civil rights history. How do you highlight Macon's history uh, as standing on its own?
2: Yeah, you have people like uh, Lucy Laney and uh, William Scarborough and uh, Wallace Rayfield, who was the second licensed black architect in the history of America. Uh, You have all of our musical legends, Otis Redding, James Brown, Little Richard, Lena Horne, uh, so many people that uh, accomplished things, particularly a matriarch, the education matriarch of Georgia, really, Lucy Laney, who uh, was so advanced at an early age, uh, at uh, Ballard Normal and um, came up in the very first class of Atlanta University. Uh, you have a lot of just amazing connections with Atlanta. And uh, then you have Charles Henry Douglas, who was a, a financial genius. And uh, because of his institution, the Douglas Theater, Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington, Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, as well as Otis being discovered in that theater—all of that culture that undergirds our modern entertainment infrastructure. A lot of that comes from making, and it comes right—and comes right out of the genius of uh, the natural genius of making Georgia people.
1: You mentioned William Scarborough. There's a story of him as a young boy recalling the reactions of black and white people in making to formal announcements of slavery's ending. What did he say?
2: What an amazing young man uh, that uh, Henry McNeil Turner marveled at his genius uh, as an adult. He was an adult and looking at this young boy, and he uh, observed uh, when the 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 call or the the statement was made at the courthouse that slavery is no more in 1865 later because macon was liberated april 22nd of 1865 but later in july he saw uh people together hearing that white and black and he saw the anguish of the white community at hearing that the dejection the total silence and then the contrast of jubilation among the black community and he just Looked at how how severe it, it hit him and of course we are ready to be free We yearn to be free But at the same time there's something strange about this moment where another people that we have had this connection with It's been a toxic connection, but it's a connection nevertheless that we, These people are so dejected what is going to be the future and as we come 154 years up from that, uh, we have many complexities that have evolved in our relationships uh, as we have continued to live together. And we will, are going to have to continue to live together in this community, how it plays out with education, with business, with the way government is is implemented, with our policies, with the attitudes uh, toward each other, uh, how all of that has come from that moment of uh, dichotomous feelings. One side is in jubilation. One side wants freedom. The other side is not ready for that. The other side just doesn't know how to live without having uh, this slavery system.
1: We're learning about Macon's Juneteenth celebrations that have been going on for a week and continue to go on through Juneteenth next week with Fadil Muhammad, who is an organizer, prime mover, and obviously uh, somebody who holds a lot of wisdom about what goes on there. He's co-founder of Georgia Juneteenth Week and Freedom Festival in Macon. Well, these these historical figures, they did live in a very different country and world than we live today. So how do you tap into the wisdom to the experience of these leaders, people in William Scarborough, just a witness to history and apply them to contemporary America?
2: Well, they were doing things that are amazingly similar in terms of trying to organize the black community to move forward, to be progressive. Uh, People like Henry McNeil Turner, the same challenges of black leadership of wanting us to be progressive. We we face those same challenges today, and they had so much wisdom. A lot of the things they were accomplishing in terms of their unity. Uh, there are things that we should not try to reinvent the wheel. Uh, many of them were doing wonderful things, the, the, the establishment of these religious institutions, the schools, people like Minnie Smith who used her own money. Uh, that she saved under her bed, $20,000 to start BETA at College in 1921. That's just two years after the Red Summer and the same year that uh, the Black Wall Street happened. Uh, the kind of, of drive that our ancestors had, we have really an ancestral obligation, to coin a phrase from Mr. Thomas Duvall. We have an ancestral obligation, and if we would stay connected with that obligation each and every day of our lives, we can produce great things in our lifetime.
1: Well, I know that you talked about educating the young about their history, but a lot of people don't know, you know, of many ages don't understand or know about this history, including something that you just mentioned. It's been a hundred years since the Red Summer of 1919. What was the Red
2: Summer? The Red Summer was a time in which Uh, A great backlash was occurring uh, in the the South and throughout America for uh, Reconstruction, post-Reconstruction, and basically the Ku Klux Klan was on the rise with this uh, anti-black campaign, and basically uh, hundreds, thousands of black people were being murdered, definitely hundreds in the hundreds, uh, and they were being uh, hung, they were being shot to death, they were being burned to death. Uh, they were being just openly murdered lynchings, uh, just a tremendous uh, uh, violence uh, that was occurring across this country. And it's something that uh, was a, a true horror movie, a true uh, nightmare for the, the, the community. And another thing that it came on the backlash of was World War One, mm-hmm. uh, great resentment of black soldiers. Uh, having a newfound dignity of them even participating and standing and fighting in the war, uh, they, there was a resentment that you, uh, you you know you think too much of yourself now. And uh, so let, let us put you back in your place, and that was a lot of what it led to.
1: Well, the trauma of those events accumulated generation by generation is is part of the reason that we're celebrating. But you are also holding a mental health forum. Uh, we're looking at a revival currently of racist violence and vocal white supremacy in our culture, certainly yes. you know. There are many documented acts of that. And then the struggles are clearly not over. So how do you keep these conversations going and move forward? That's one of the big questions in our culture right now.
2: I think to keep solutions, you know, it's, it's, it's very good to go through the details and analyze the t- statistics and, and really look at, you know, what are the real problems. But at the end of that conversation... The real emphasis has to be on what is the solution? What can we do to change this? How can we really act to bring about a change? And that seeking of solutions is certainly a very uh, fervent focus, should be. Uh, for black people among themselves, as well as black, white, Latino, Indian, whoever, uh, Asian, all the total diversity of our community that is aware of our struggles, aware of our challenges. We need to always be about solution-based. How can we really bring this about in a way that is going to serve the best interests of all?
1: So what are the events that are coming up this weekend in Macon that demonstrate and live those principles and those ideas that you're just talking about?
2: Well, we have two basic events. Tonight, uh, 6 o'clock at Frank Johnson Recreation Center, is the Mental Health Forum, and that is basically addressing the issues of mental health uh, that are just pervasive, just a huge Problem, we have a number of panelists that are going to be talking about solutions about uh, how what they recommend and uh, And then listening to the community. But then we go into the festival tomorrow and at Tatlin Square Park, which is where Making Was Surrendered, a uh, place of, of that we're exercising freedom where our ancestors struggled for freedom. We have some fantastic talent that's going to be presented gospel, hip hop, jazz. Uh, neo-soul. And then we have black union soldiers from uh, reenactors that come from Jacksonville, 54th, Massachusetts, that take us into that history, demonstrate uh, what it was like. They show you, you can see, you can feel, you can smell. Uh, And then we have another uh, uh, leader, um, Lonnie Davis from the Uh, Akmogi National Monument who's very knowledgeable and it's a lot of education a lot and we also have Terry Aksum Austin, Ajile Aksum doing modern and African dance and she'll do a review on I Am Somebody uh, dance theater so it's a lot of wonderful experiences in the festival from 1 to 9 p.m. at Tattano Square Park tomorrow
1: Fadil Muhammad, thank you so
2: much for joining us Thank you so much for having me.
1: Fadil is co-founder of the Georgia Juneteenth Week and Freedom Festival in Macon. There's a full list of what we've got coming up for Juneteenth. And you're listening to Eddie Kirkland's Them Bones, A Macon Man. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Four years ago this month, 12 members of the historically black Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, welcomed a young white man to join their Bible study group. When their eyes shut for a closing prayer, he pulled out a Glock pistol and fired 77 rounds, killing nine.
0: WBTV is reporting that there's been a shooting at a church there, a shooting at a church in Charleston. It happened just about an hour ago, about 9 p.m. To in
1: the-, the days and weeks that followed, the nation learned about the lives of the nine people killed in the racially motivated massacre at the historically black church. We saw an outpouring of support and a landmark vote to remove the Confederate flag from the South Carolina State House. We know less about the longer toll of the trauma covered by Jennifer Barry Hawes and her colleagues for the Charleston Post and Courier newspaper. Hawes details the event and its disastrous aftermath on survivors, the families of the Emanuel Nine, the church community, and the entire country in Grace Will Lead Us Home, The Charleston Church Massacre, and The Hard, Inspiring Journey to Forgiveness. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jennifer Barry Haas is going to be speaking about the book at the Carter Center Library on Friday and joins me now on the line from Charleston. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you for having me. So this book opens with Felicia Sanders making her way to church for not quite normal Wednesday night Bible study. In fact, it was almost canceled. What did you learn about that deliberation and the fateful decision to stay?
0: Well, that night, the church had a number of things going on, the largest of which was a quarterly conference, which drew closer to 60 people who gathered to discuss church business and and handle various issues. And then most of them left. It had gotten so late at that point that the few who normally stayed for Bible study debated amongst themselves whether to go ahead and hold it or or wait and do it another time when one woman spoke up and said, well, let's just do a little bit of it. Uh, Myra Thompson, one of those who died, was leading the study for the first time and was very excited, very prepared. Um, And so they went ahead and did it.
1: So chilling to read about that decision when we know what is to come. And as you write at the same time, a hundred miles away, young man also preparing to drive to Emanuel A.M.E. about the same time that Felicia was. Why did he choose Charleston and that particular church as his target?
0: Well, he said that he chose Charleston because of its history, and so most people assume that he's talking about its history of slavery. Charleston was the epicenter of the slave trade, um, an estimated 40% or so of enslaved Africans who came here came through the port of Charleston. And so he picked the city for, uh, for those reasons. And why he picked Emanuel in particular remains something of a mystery. He had with him a list of several black churches and obviously chose Emanuel. He scouted out the church several times over the months before, uh, while he also visited various Plantations and other sites that are connected to slavery uh, and the Confederacy. So um, it, it all seems to wrap around the same the same thinking. Tell us a little bit about the history of that church in particular and its role in the
1: Charleston community.
0: Emmanuel is a very historic church. It was formed back in the days um, when there was still slavery. In fact, one of the most famous uh, members was a man named Denmark Vesey, who was a class leader at the church. He organized in 1822 a massive slave rebellion, which the authorities discovered, and then they hanged Vesey and about three dozen of his alleged co-conspirators. Uh, They burned Emmanuel to the ground after that, the white residents did, and the members were forced to go worship underground. So at the end of the Civil War in 1865, they were able to rebuild, and they chose at that point in time the name Emmanuel, which in the Gospel of Matthew means God with us. And obviously that that selection is um, particularly meaningful, both in the history and the moving forward of the church.
1: That night, June the 17th, of 2015, Dylan Roof sat there with Felicia and her aunt Susie Jackson, her son Tawanza Sanders, DePayne Middleton Dr. Ethel Lance, the Reverend Sharonda Coleman Singleton, the Reverend Clementa Pinckney, Cynthia Hurd, Reverend Daniel Simmons, Myra Thompson, Polly Shepard, and Felicia's 11 year old granddaughter for nearly an hour. He waited until their eyes were shut for benediction. And here is Felicia recalling that moment in an NBC News interview with Lester Holt.
2: I tried to hold her as tight as I could to me so she wouldn't make a sound. And I just heard, I heard every shot. I heard every single shot. someone of us saying, where's Aunt Susie? I got to get to Aunt Susie. And he didn't stop till he got to get to Aunt Susie. He'd been wounded several times Yes, he's still trying to crawl there. to his He own. got there. I said, I love you to Walter. He said, Mom, I love you. I love you. And I watched him take his last breath.
1: It is just incomprehensible and heartbreaking to hear that. Um, and harrowing to read of the carnage, which you write about in thorough, but I would say not gratuitous detail. And I wonder how many times you had to go through that scene.
0: What was that like for you? Well, I wanted that scene to be exactly what you said. I wanted for people who read it to really feel like they're there, but not to stop reading. And as a writer, that's a fine line. Um, you know, Felicia's story and of the other people in there. Polly Shepard is the other adult survivor. Um, it, it's just so hard to even imagine what that would be like. There, the the group was sitting around. Four tables, four of those round sort of fold-out tables you would use at events. And so after the shooting began, they all dove beneath the tables. Instead of running for the doors, they dove beneath the tables because there's sort of an open expanse between the tables and the doors. And so he shot them as they all cowered beneath these tables, and some were praying. Um, As Felicia mentioned, her son uh, was shot several times, and after he was shot at one point, he tried to— push himself up and speak to the gunman and say, why are you doing this? We don't mean you any harm. Um, And to imagine what that must have been like to then watch this man shoot Tawanza and kill him, uh, it it really, uh, it's hard to get out of your mind. And for those of us who are at the courtroom when this trial took place, you saw the crime scene photographs and it was just absolutely uh, horrific to think what they endured, and for the people who survived, the the memories and the images and the sounds, and the smells that they carry forward, uh, I I just don't know how they do it. Yeah, uh, and just down the hall, there Reverend Pinkney's wife Jennifer was sitting with their six-year-old daughter. What did what did she hear? Mm-hmm. So they were um, in the pastor's office, and when she heard the gunshots, she originally went for the door to open it. There's a door between the room they were in and the fellowship hall where the shooting took place. She went to open the door, um, thought better of it, and um, ferried the little girl into a neighboring secretary's office, and they hid beneath a desk, and at one point Jennifer picked up the desk phone to call 911, it was pitch dark in the room, and the phone began to beep the way it does if you leave the receiver off too long. So she pushed, the, put the receiver back down and was petrified that the shooter was coming toward them because he, in fact, in those moments was um, pursuing Dan Simmons Sr. This is a retired pastor who um, had been shot after he went over to the church's pastor who had been shot to help Uh, The shooter then kind of pursued him down this small hallway. So to Jennifer, it sounded as if the shots were coming closer. She didn't know if he had heard the telephone. Uh, So, you know, she was terrified her little girl was going to scream. Felicia was on the floor inside the fellowship hall, terrified her granddaughter was going to scream or move. She described holding her so closely to her chest and so tightly that she was afraid she would suffocate her. Jennifer was in another room. She had locked the door at one point and eventually was able to get to her cell phone. Um, And at the same time, in the fellowship hall, there was a survivor, Polly Shepard, who was hiding beneath the table, praying out loud. And she watched Roof's boots approach, Dylan Roof, the shooter. She watched his boots approach. And then he asked her, have I shot you yet? And she says, no. And he says, well, I'm not going to. I'm going to leave you here to tell the story. So Polly and Felicia and the little granddaughter were the only three who survived out of the twelve who'd gathered for Bible study that night. My guest is Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Jennifer Barry Haas, and her
1: book Grace Will Lead Us Home is about the aftermath of the Charleston Church Massacre. She's gonna be at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library talking about the book tonight. So what happened? When the p- police arrived, they couldn't actually get medical help in at the time. And, th- and this, I understand from your book, is, is establishing a protocol that has been created because there have been so many mass shootings. What were they doing?
0: That's right. In the past, what would happen is police would form a perimeter and then wait for the SWAT team to go in. But what we've learned in mass shootings is that if you do that, there's way more death. Uh, so now police will will go in right away. and that's what happened here. There were four police officers initially who went into the church. Uh, you know they didn't know what they would find in there. They only knew there was uh, there were two active shooter calls. So they went in uh, immediately inside those doors is the fellowship hall. So they saw obviously the bodies uh, on the ground. They saw Felicia's little granddaughter walking around the bodies and Felicia near her son, who'd been, Um, grievously wounded, and Polly, of course. So before they could call in any medical care, they have to make sure it's safe. So the fellowship hall has a number of rooms that come off of it, and a hallway, and a restroom. So they had to clear all that and make sure it was safe, get the survivors out into safety, and then call in medical care. Uh, one One of those who'd been shot, Dan Simmons Sr., the retired minister, in fact, was still alive. And they hurried him to the Medical University of South Carolina, which is just a few blocks away. And the medical staff and the trauma bay there tried valiantly to try to save him, but were not able to. And they had a number of other beds prepared with crews ready to go uh, to take other victims. But everybody else who'd been shot uh, died in the fellowship hall that night. Well, we we do know
1: that part of the story. What I didn't know is that police had settled the family, uh, family and called others at the nearby Embassy Suites Hotel, chaplains, coroners, breaking the news to the victims' loved ones, those who were in the church, of course, a few children who had been there that night. There's a story that you tell about recounting you, you recount how Jennifer Pinckney, the wife of Reverend Clementa Pinckney, told their daughter what had happened to him. What did she say? How did she explain it?
0: In terms that are very Jennifer, she was pretty blunt. Um, she told them that he had died and was not coming home. And, and keep in mind, the, the youngest of their two daughters, the younger girl, was the one who was in the, the church with her. So she knew that. Um, to some degree, Jennifer assumed, their older daughter, Eliana, was not. And so she told them that he was not coming home, but that they were going to move forward and basically imparted on them that their lives were going to continue and they'd always remember Clemente. And that's very much in keeping with how Jennifer handled it afterwards. She really committed herself to keeping their lives as normal as possible and keeping them in in their dance routines. They love dance and having them do chores and homework. And she felt very strongly that all of their lives should um, be, as I said, as normal as possible. So she, in fact, did not see uh, the shooter, Dylan Roof, until his trial, which was about 18 months later. She didn't go to the court hearings. She didn't read a whole lot about what had happened. That was her way of coping and the way she kept her daughter's. Uh, From getting caught up in a lot of the stuff that was going on, but also just in the, uh, you know, sheer media spotlight. There was a tremendous amount of attention to the shooting, tremendous amount of people wanted to talk with her and talk with them. And she really, really worked hard to protect them from that. The immediate goal, of course, was to locate the killer. After that,
1: Dylan Roof left even before the police got there and, you know, pulled out in his Hyundai and, uh, as dawn approached, Roof was still unaccounted for. How did police finally find him?
0: He had traveled some backrobes by and large, to the border of North and South Carolina, just outside Charlotte, where he had to stop and um, get gas, as I recall. He took some time to rest, and then he continued on. And as he was driving... Uh, The next morning, a woman was on her way to work, and she happened to look over and notice that he looked like a man she had seen on TV. So she called her local police, and they wound up pulling him over without incident. The gun was on the back seat. He didn't resist or try to flee. So they were able to capture him without any episode.
1: Dylan Roof wanted
0: there to be outrage.
1: He thought it would start a race war or help stir one up. Now you and others have traced how he became radicalized and you did that in a very, you know, thorough way in the book, but could you summarize that for us?
0: Roof, according to his own statements, wasn't raised in a racist home. His environment was pretty normal to the south, it sounds like. So there was certainly a subtext of race and racism, but it doesn't sound as if his immediate family Uh, was uh, racist in the way that he was, certainly. He, in fact, developed his views on white supremacist websites. He became curious about the Trayvon Martin case, if you remember, and he couldn't understand why the case was getting so much attention. He Googled it, and he poked around a bit, and he wound up on a site called the Council uh, of Conservative Citizens, which is a racist website, and he essentially began a journey into this underbelly of white supremacism that um, is pretty common. He uh, went on to the Stormfront website and Daily Stormer and some others and really seems to have just devoured the language and the uh, views without doing a whole lot of his own independent research to see if what he was learning was in fact true. Uh, He really, really glommed onto the idea that um, black men were raping white women in mass, and that the media was covering it all up. Uh, and this sort of thing. So he developed the view that he wanted to reinstitute uh, segregation. That was one of his one of his things. Um, but it's interesting, you know, he, he people talk about that he wanted to start a race war, but in fact, in his confession, he says, "Oh, well, a race war would be bad. People would die. So it's as if he he didn't, I'm not even sure he had a clear idea of what he was trying to do. Yeah, he
1: seemed like a very confused young man. And we uh, see more of evidence of that throughout the book. I'm speaking with Jennifer Berry-Hawes. We're talking about what's known as the Charleston Massacre now. She's out with a book called Grace Will Lead Us Home. And it draws on her reporting of what that trauma triggered in the survivors and the families of those who were killed in the massacre. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB and Virginia Prescott. Like many other members of the media, Jennifer Berry Hawes covered the Charleston Massacre four years ago this month. Among the mourners, then President Barack Obama, here eulogizing church pastor Reverend Clementa Pinckney.
2: Amazing grace.
1: How sweet. But while the eyes of the world moved on, Jennifer stuck around, a veteran Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the Post and Courier newspaper in Charleston. She knew local politics and history. Her kids went to school across the square from the church known as Mother Emanuel. And she came to know the people whose lives were forever changed by the killing. They are the focus of her new book, Grace Will Lead Us Home, The Charleston Church Massacre and The Hard, Inspiring Journey to Forgiveness. She'll be talking about the book at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library tonight. So, Jennifer, two days after the shooting and one day after his arrest, Dylan Roof did appear in court for the first time at a bond hearing. Nadine Collier, she's the daughter of one of the victims, Ethel Lance, was there too. And she stood to address Ruth.
2: You took something very precious away from me. I would never talk to her ever again. I would never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. But forgive
1: you. I forgive you. Just another stunning moment in this story. Reverend Anthony Thompson, husband of Myra Thompson, also stood and offered his forgiveness. And people in the courtroom and, and those across the nature were just floored by these declarations. You report in the book that President Obama was aboard Marine One preparing a public statement about that tragedy. How did this change his tack?
0: Well, he was with some staff members, and one of the staff members was reading from uh, his BlackBerry at the time uh, the comments that were being made. And the president said, hold off on the statistics. Uh, I want to go with that. He recognized that the themes that were emerging from the bond hearing were amazing, and uh, he wanted to tap into that sentiment. And indeed, when he came and delivered Clemente Pinckney's eulogy, he did so.
1: Well, not everyone shared the willingness to forgive. The the tension between responses, this spectrum of rage and forgiveness, runs through the individual stories in this book. What examples come to mind for you of how people considered forgiveness and what it meant to them?
0: Well, a good example is even within Nadine Collier's family. So Nadine was the first person to speak, of course. And her sister, Sharon Risher, who's an AMU minister, was in Dallas where she lives. Uh, She was a trauma chaplain at the time. And she heard her sister's words and they made her angry because she didn't even know exactly what had happened and she didn't forgive him at the time. She certainly intended to, but she felt that that quick forgiveness was not the way she wanted her mother to be remembered. She wanted to bring some accountability to this killer first. And Sharon did come to forgiveness later but it really was not until after the trial, and she had the space in her own mind and heart to really think about uh, doing so. And she was not shy about voicing that difference. So there within one family, just even between sisters, uh, you had a very different view. And, and the same thing happened among many people. For instance, Cynthia Hurd's um, brothers uh, have spoken about how They had no intention of forgiving Dylan Roof at that time. They wanted him brought to justice. Now, it's not to say that any of those people weren't pursuing forgiveness. As Christians, they understood that's what the Bible called them to do. But the idea of forgiving someone right away, um, that was not how they were going to cope with it.
1: Well, and it also bring, brought up a big conversation. I remember marveling at the, them hearing their words of forgiveness and just being absolutely stunned. But it's also very significant in American racial history. In fact, Ta-Nehisi Coates, he tweeted about it, you know, something like, would you forgive the those who beheaded
0: people in ISIS or something like that? Mm-hmm. Right. He said something like, I, I don't see that. I don't remember seeing the campaign for forgiveness after the ISIS beheadings. And he made a point that was felt around the country, which was twofold. One is, are African Americans in America, are they asked to forgive or expected to forgive and acquiesce in this way, in a way that white Americans are not? The other point was people worried that that quick forgiveness allowed people to seek cover from real conversations about our history and about racial disparities and racism that still exists so there there certainly was controversy that erupted from those words even though they were also very inspiring well and that part of the conversation
1: also came up as worldwide people are pouring out gestures of support and messages of unity and in the governor's mansion, Nikki Haley decides this is the moment to challenge the Confederate flag that's flying on the grounds in front of the
0: state house.
1: Can you help us understand the dynamics of that ongoing fight in South Carolina and where she fit in?
0: Well, a little more than a decade earlier, this had become a huge issue in South Carolina when the flag at that time flew above the state house dome. And a compromise lowered it to a flagpole out front. Now, Haley knew very well that calling for the removal of that flag uh, out front would be very controversial. And in fact, the last governor who had called on people to do so lost his job. Haley brought a different view, though, in a sense, because she grew up in a small town here, the daughter of Indian immigrants in a community that was still pretty racially divided. And she told the story to her fellow lawmakers. Um, during this debate, where she was traveling with her father. Now, her father was uh, is Sikh, and he wore a turban. So in rural South Carolina, that would have been a very unusual sight. So she was driving with him to Columbia, the state capitol, and they pulled over to a vegetable stand. This was when she was a little girl. And her father was picking out some produce. When she noticed the produce stand owner, I assume, call somebody, and pretty soon some police cars pulled up, and they um, watched as her father finished selecting his produce and then went and purchased it, and they left. And uh, she realized the racial profiling that was going on there uh, and was trying to make the point for fellow legislators that the state house should be a place where all people feel welcome. So even if you have differing views about what the flag represents, to many people, particularly black residents, it represented something very negative thing. And she uh, told this story with hopes of changing some minds. Um, Eventually, the legislature did so. But it did generate considerable controversy.
1: Here she is speaking on the Today Show about making those very points. In South Carolina, we honor tradition. We honor history. We honor heritage. But there's a place for that flag, and that flag needs to be in a museum where we will continue to make sure that people can honor it appropriately. But the statehouse, that's an area that belongs to everyone, and no one should ever drive by the statehouse and feel pain. No one should ever drive by the statehouse and feel like they don't belong. And so I think this is a hopeful day for South Carolina. So when she did speak in front of the legislature, that was 13 hours of debate, actually, until they finally arrived at a decision. One of the representatives, Mike Pitts, a state rep who told the media that he took out his hearing aids while she spoke. What does that act and making it clear to the press reveal about the forces at play there in South Carolina?
0: Well, there is still a substantial part of the citizenry here that revere the flag as something that represents the honor of their um, ancestors who fought in the war and it represents Southern resistance to Northern aggression. Obviously, some people call the, call the war that. It represents to people a history that's very different from the history of slavery. They see it as... Um, you know, a flag of honor. Obviously, not everybody sees it that way, but that that group is substantial, and that's the force that Nikki Haley was really up against and and remains, although, you know, it's interesting, I just don't hear as much as I used to from them. That sentiment used to be um, much more public. It's still here, of course, but I think that Roof's actions help some people like Haley really understand what the flag meant, particularly to the black residents of the state.
1: My guest is Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jennifer Barry Hawes, author of the book Grace Will Lead Us Home. It's about how the survivors, the family members, and the community affected directly by the Charleston Church Massacre lived with that trauma for now four years. She's going to be at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library talking about the book tonight. Thousands of people came to hear President Obama's eulogy for Reverend Pinckney. Millions of people have viewed that online. But you follow the families and survivors and the fissures inside of those families exacerbated by this tragedy and and the trauma. What are some of the kind of ways that those showed up?
0: One thing I really came to understand is that if you throw this kind of enormous trauma into any family, every loving relationship is magnified and every slight and resentment and hurt is magnified by a million times and that on top of dealing with the grief and loss and the media spotlight and all that they all went through a lot of disruption within their own families. For instance, Cynthia Hurd her husband had considerable fallout with her brothers they wound up where they just don't want anything to do with one another with Ethel Lance's family. On top of it, two years after the shooting, another one of their sisters died of natural causes. But nonetheless, it was yet another loss. Jennifer Pinckney's mother died, yet another loss. The families, by and large, had um, strained relationships with the church, and the survivors particularly did. It seemed like everything was in some amount of flux for them. And that was really what I wanted to get across, was that that forgiveness bow and the unity walk, and that sort of thing were on the one hand, beautiful and inspiring, but on the other hand, really did not tell the story of what it's like to deal with the aftermath of this kind of tragedy. Meanwhile,
1: the pastor who had taken over for Reverend Pinckney, Norval Goff, he's getting international acclaim uh, for leading this church. And yet the survivors and the families of those who were slain don't really share those feelings. In fact, many of them feeling quite adrift Uh, Polly Shepard goes to Cynthia Hurd's funeral, and she can't even get into the church. Uh, Felicia Sanders and Polly shared a story with you for your newspaper and weren't admitted to the church. What happened there?
0: The the way that played out, and that was the moment when I really realized that there was much more going on here. Um, Felicia and Polly sat down with me to talk about their story, and it was the first time they had done so with the reporter. You know, it was a big moment for them to let people know what they'd been through. And keep in mind, Felicia had been at Emmanuel, well, f- her family had, for generations. And Polly was a church trustee, which is a position that oversees the property of the church. Uh, so we go to take a picture of them for our story in the sanctuary. It's a weekday morning, there's sanctuary's empty, and the women in the church office won't let them in to take the picture. And I'll never forget standing out front, uh, it was a thousand degrees and Felicia was in a dark suit, Traffic coming by, tourists taking pictures of the church and she's crying, I've lost my son and now I'm losing my church. And it was just a devastating moment and to to hear her pain uh, and then watch her journey from there on out. She at one point wrote Reverend Goff a letter asking if he could come to her home and, and counsel her. She had many, many spiritual questions, not the least of which was why this had happened. And He never came. She felt very, very rejected by the church's leaders. And in fact, just the other day, she was at a forum for the launch of this book with us, and she stood up and said that she felt that the church wished they had all died that night. And I can imagine carrying that pain forward. Uh, That's part of the story that I felt was very important to understand that not only did they deal with the loss and trauma that night, but their ordeals went on and on.
1: Church Secretary Althea Latham was suddenly fired without notice, effective immediately. Now, this is the woman who had been opening up uh, all of the envelopes full of donations or putting them in stacks for the people. They were in, often addressed to the individual families or individuals. Did you ever get an accurate count of how much money actually came in?
0: No, we have to rely on the amount that the church has provided. Many people obviously think there's more. Uh, the church has never had an independent audit of its entire um set of books, it had an audit of the one fund that it created to house the donations. But obviously, if you don't put the donations in that fund, they are not going to show up in the audit. So the families and others really wanted the church to have an independent audit. uh, So it might answer some of these questions, but there remain lingering questions. For instance, many of the families received mail, as you mentioned, that was sent to the church, and it was marked um, empty or opened. And uh, that raised tremendous suspicion among them of what was going on. Why was their mail being open? It was clearly addressed to them. It was just sent to the church because people didn't know where they lived and who they were in those days. Keep in mind, this was back um, you know, in the first weeks and months after the shooting. Uh, so people sent donations to the church expecting, in, in their minds, that they would deliver them directly to the families, not open them and certainly not remove anything if that was done. So there were some who wanted to sue. I think
1: Stephen Hurd wanted to sue the church for its handling, but then eventually a lot of people did get checks from the church, although in what I would imagine to be small amounts. But meanwhile, you are painting this picture for us, Jennifer Berry-Hawes, of you know a, a Charleston that is on the one hand declaring unity, but a culture that is deeply divided in racial silos a place where you live, your community. And I'm wondering if for you, you, you are a white woman writing about this story. What kind of perspective are you bringing in, both as a resident and you know, as a journalist who's looking at a lot of different sides of this story?
0: Hopefully I can bring some perspective as someone who's lived here. I've lived here for 20 years, but I'm not from Charleston. I'm from Chicago. I'd lived in Atlanta actually for several years, but I, you know, I'm not writing from the perspective of what it's like to be an African-American resident here. That's for sure. I'm trying to tell the story of the people who were involved and share the story through their eyes. And as a journalist, that's the position that we would typically take. I'm really trying to tell the story through what they see and hear and think and have experienced. Jennifer
1: Berry-Haas, thank you. Thank you very much. That is the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jennifer Berry Hawes. She's also the winner of a Polk Award. Her book, Grace Will Lead Us Home, about the Charleston Church Massacre and its aftermath is out now. She's going to be at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Library talking about the book tonight. We will leave you with Aretha Franklin singing Amazing Grace from the film of the same name.